Good morning. Keep your Bibles open to Psalm 107, where our goal this morning is to give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. He is good. Uh, I was kind of encouraged to preach on the topic of thanksgiving for a couple of reasons, Uh, one of them being that because in my house it's already Christmas, at least in one particular room, and I'm not going to embarrass her by saying her name, but it rhymes with Flava. <clears throat> Before Halloween was already done, Christmas decorations were going up in Ava's room. She loves Christmas, and I capitulated and I helped her decorate her tree, put up her tree in her room uh, because she loves to decorate for Christmas. And um, she also loves Thanksgiving, though, but I just kind of have this thing about people rushing to Christmas and skipping Thanksgiving, and that's not the case with Ava. She loves Thanksgiving. Uh, We love going to Arkansas, going to Grandma's house at Thanksgiving like many of us do. And so uh, she doesn't have a problem with Thanksgiving, yet many in our culture want to rush ahead to Christmas and kind of skip right over Thanksgiving. Or... If we don't skip it all together, we just narrow it down to one day a year where, as we've seen in this text and we've seen in our, heard in our singing, that Thanksgiving really ought to be an ongoing attitude of the heart. It ought to be an ongoing practice or mark or fruit of the believer. I mean, when does Thanksgiving ever end? It doesn't end on uh, November 25th or 26th. It continues. And so we want to prepare uh, to celebrate Thanksgiving all this month as we approach the holiday and also uh, teach our hearts to be thankful for many things. So this morning, Psalm 107, I'm calling this Thanksgiving more than a holiday, or we could call it give thanks to the Lord for He is good if we want to draw that directly from the text, or we could call it my daughter's already got Christmas decorations in her room. Whatever you want to call this sermon. Big idea. Uh, I thought of the big idea late last night, Pastor Chris, as I was going to bed. I realized, oh, I don't have a big idea. I should have a big idea. And I either dreamed about coming up with a big idea or woke up several times in the middle of the night trying to come up with a big idea. Uh, So here's what I have. Those redeemed by the Lord, those redeemed by the Lord must give thanks to the Lord for the steadfast love of of the Lord. Those redeemed by the Lord must give thanks to the Lord for the steadfast love of the Lord. That's the big idea of this passage. This psalm is a song that is similar to what we've already been singing. You've already been practicing and rehearsing this psalm this morning. The singing this morning is just incredibly and unusually loud and great this morning. I'm always listening, but for some reason this morning, it was even more so. And the idea of this psalm and the psalm writer, it's as if he's gathering a choir of the redeemed together to sing of the steadfast love and goodness of our Redeemer. And he's gathering them from all four corners of the world, as you see in verse 3, from the east and the west the north and from the south, or even from over the seas, that can be translated. I know that Pastor Dave right now is gathering choirs all over the church, getting ready to celebrate the birth of our Savior. He's talking to the adult choir and has music picked out for them. He's already started practicing with our youth group 
singing Christmas songs so that they can participate. And he'll be calling for the children's choir to come and sing Christmas songs. He's calling from all areas to celebrate the birth of our Savior. And here the psalmist is calling anyone who has been redeemed from anywhere in any circumstance to come together and sing songs of joy, verse 22, for the goodness and steadfast love of our Redeemer. Who do the redeemed sing about? Their Redeemer. Why do the redeemed sing? Because we've been redeemed. What else is there that we could sing about? There are in this psalm or song four verses. Think of them as four verses. Hopefully you heard them as Pastor Chris read. They're easy to mark out in the Bible, and I'll show them to you in just a moment. But in each verse, you kind of have a a pattern. So he's calling people from four corners of the earth to sing four verses of a song, and in each of the four verses, there are four parts, four rhythms, a four-part pattern, so to speak. And that pattern is this. You have a problem, you have a cry, you have deliverance, and you have thanksgiving. That's the pattern in each of these four verses. You have a problem, You have a cry. In fact, let's look at the cry. Verse 6, they cried to the Lord. Verse 13, they cried to the Lord. Verse 19, they cried to the Lord. And verse 28, they cried to the Lord. I have those highlighted in my Bible. Verse 6, 13, 19, and 28. And then you see the repetition of thanksgiving in verse 8, 15, 21, and 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Verse 15, let them thank the Lord. Verse 21 and verse 31. You can highlight those in your Bible. So problem, cry, deliverance, thanksgiving, or as one of my former seminary professors says it this way, and I like his way better, you have peril, prayer, provision, and praise. That's easier to remember. Peril, prayer, provision, and praise. The four-part rhythm or pattern of these four verses. This psalm ends... Uh, begins with an introduction, ends with a conclusion, and it is bookended by the familiar verse that we all know, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Look at verse 1 through 3, you have the introduction. And then, maybe you do what I've done in my Bible, bracket off verses 4 through 9. Verses 4 through 9 are verse 1 of this psalm. Verses 10 through 16, you can mark those off as verse 2 of the psalm. Verse 3 can be found in verses 17 through 22. And then the last verse of this psalm is verses 23 through 32. It's where Chris ended reading. And then the remainder of the psalm is kind of like a conclusion or maybe in keeping with song terminology, maybe a bridge or a refrain. I don't know what would be a good description of that. So that's kind of how the psalm is structured, and I'll give you even a further structure in just a moment. In this psalm, I want you to see two things. I want you to see our dilemma. I want you to find yourself in this psalm, where you're at in any of these four verses, or maybe all of these four verses, but I also want you to see the Lord's deliverance. I want you to see your dilemma, and I want you to see the Lord in His deliverance. As I've said, there is a lot of repetition in this psalm. Why so much repetition? We've already been learning this in Exodus. The repetition is because we're forgetful. We need to be reminded. I love what Puritan commentator William Plummer said of repetition. He said this, 
I'm kind of paraphrasing him. He said, the more important a spiritual duty or the more reluctant the human heart is to perform it, the more frequent it will be reminded of us. So the more important a spiritual duty it is, or the more reluctant our human heart is to perform it, the more frequent it will be reminded. And we're reminded over and over again in this psalm to give thanks to the Lord, for He is what? He is good. We're reminded over and over again to thank the Lord for His steadfast love, four times each. We're reminded of God's thankfulness, repeatedly, His goodness, repeatedly, His steadfast love, We're reminded to cry out in trouble. We're reminded of our deliverance from distress. We're reminded of God's wondrous works over and over and over and over. Four times, four verses as we sing this song. How much more important is it for the redeemed to say so? Repetition speaks to the importance of God giving it to us and the reluctance of our hearts wanting to do it. So let's look at the psalm. Let's look at the introduction in the first three verses. Give thanks to the Lord. Uh, this is, in some ways, a command to give thanks. It's an imperative. It's commanding us to thank the Lord. And the rest of the times we hear, let them give thanks, is still commanding, but it's more of an invitation. It's more of a call to praise the Lord and thank the Lord. Here it's strictly a command to give thanks, to give thanks. This word to give thanks means to cast or to throw or to give thanks or to praise, even to confess. And you're thinking, okay, I I get praise, I get thanks, I get confessed, but what does throwing and casting have to do with this word? It may seem disconnected, but if you think of the word thanksgiving and you reverse it, we are giving thanks, right? And the whole idea of giving thanks means I'm giving it to someone so there's a recipient. I'm handing thanks, I'm giving thanks, I'm throwing, as it were, thanks to someone, in this case, to the Lord. There is a transfer of thanks from my heart to the Lord. When you were singing this morning and giving thanks this morning, to whom were you giving your thanks? To the Lord. There was a transfer there. It's even possible, couldn't verify this, but even the act of lifting the hands in the Hebrew culture and even today, the act of lifting the hands was an expression of casting or throwing our thanks up to the Lord. It's just a visual reminder that I'm giving the Lord my thanks. I'm giving Him my praise. Some of you love to lift your hands as you sing thanks to the Lord. And then there's a, a clear pattern anywhere you look in the Old Testament, and we even see it in this psalm, of thanksgiving. If you want to simplify for what are we to give thanks for, it is who God is and what God does. Who God is and what God does. And again, we're going to see that in these verses. You see it in verse 8, 13, 19, and 28. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, that's who he is, for his wondrous works to the children of man. That's what he does. So you see that refrain repeated over and over again. It says here to give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. If you flip back one chapter, Psalm 106, you see the same phrase beginning that psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. If you go forward to Psalm 118, that psalm is also bookended with this same verse. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
Why do we sing of God's goodness? Because he is good. That goodness is who he is and what he does, right? Remember Psalm 119, verse 68 that we memorized months ago. The Lord is good and what? Does good. He is good and he does good. When they came to Jesus and called him good teacher, he said in Mark 10 and in Luke 18, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. God holds the market, corners the market on goodness. If you want to measure what is good, you measure it against what God is and who God is. There was so much written on this, I I almost just camped out here on goodness, but it's simply one word here in the text. But let me read you from, again, someone uh, older, smarter, and now with the Lord, Stephen Sharnock, in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God. This is what he says about the goodness of God. Pure and perfect goodness is only the royal prerogative of God. Goodness is a choice, perfection of the divine nature. It's the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness. Good in himself, good in his essence, good in the highest degree, possessing whatever is comely, Excellent, desirable, the highest good. Whatever is perfect goodness is God. Whatever is truly goodness in any creature is a resemblance of God. All the names of God, he says, are comprehended in this one of good. All his gifts, all the varieties of his goodness are contained in him as one common good. He is the efficient cause of all good. I think of James. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? He is overflowing in goodness from his nature. He refers all things to himself as the end for representation of his own goodness. And quoting Psalm 73 verse 1, Sharnock says, truly God is good. Give thanks to the Lord, Celtics, for he is good. He is good. Yeah, but if God is so good, then why why is there evil in the world? If your God is so good, why is there suffering in the world? Well, that's a whole nother message, but let me say in short a couple of ways to answer that. Psalm 119 answers the question of goodness and suffering. Again, passages that we memorized several months ago. Verse 71 in Psalm 119 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. The psalmist found goodness in God's afflictions. How do we know they were God's afflictions? Because verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Affliction comes from the hand of God, so affliction is good. It comes from the good and faithful hand of God. But what about evil? We, we can't blame God for evil, can we? Of course not. We don't do that. James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. So what do we say about goodness and evil? We say what Joseph said about goodness and evil when he spoke to his brothers. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50, verse 20. Maybe here's our counsel here. Be be careful 
trying to define God's goodness and character based on observing his actions. Instead, you want to interpret his actions based on his character. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. Be careful trying to define his goodness by your observation of his actions. Rather, we interpret his actions on the basis of his goodness. He afflicts in goodness. He loves in goodness. He cares for us out of his goodness. Give thanks to the Lord, church, for he is good. Not only is he good, but his steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love, his hesed love, his covenantal obligatory love, his binding covenant and promise to love and do good to his people. It's one of the broadest uh, attributes or descriptions of the Lord, his covenant love. There's no English word to accurately describe it. It's hard for Bible translators to translate it. Sometimes it appears as kindness, faithfulness, mercy, goodness, loyalty, steadfast love as the ESV, loyal love, your translation might read. It's in the words of George Matheson, the hymn writer from the 1800s, it is a love that will not let me go, amen? Steadfast, loyal love. He commits himself to us because he loves us. And it's this steadfast love that what is what we see in action here in Psalm 107. We're about to see the steadfast love and goodness of God in action. How does he love? How is he good? We're going to see that. Again, uh, it's characteristic of the Lord. Exodus 34, verse 6. I won't steal Pastor Chris's thunder because we're not there yet. But when, when Moses wants to see a glimpse of the glory of God, God speaks to him and he says, this is who I am. I am a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. When Moses wanted to see God, God said to him, I am a God of steadfast love. You don't want to know what God is like. He is a God abounding in steadfast love. Lamentations 3 verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 136, you can look later. Psalm 136 is that psalm where 26 times the psalmist repeats the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, over and over and over and over again, because his love endures and endures and endures and endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Who is he commanding to say this? Verse 2, the redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you're redeemed here, say so. Has God redeemed you? Then say it. Someone who has been redeemed is someone who understands redemption. Someone who has been bought back from the shackles of slavery, from the debt of sin. And who is our Redeemer? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here directly, it's probably talking about Israel who was captive in Babylon, they, he's gathering them from the four corners of the world. They've been released from slavery. Our children are learning about redemption in Awana. They know that redemption means just as Israel was delivered from slavery, boys and girls, do you remember? Believers are delivered from sin and 
death and eternal destruction, having been purchased by what? The blood of Christ. The redeemed are to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now let's get into these four verses. Four scenarios, four ways of, or four ways of viewing the same scenario. This, again, most likely is Israel's return from captivity, but commentators differ on that. It's not as important of what the original intent here. It represents any of us at any given time in our lives. It represents Israel, and it represents anyone who finds themselves in these scenarios. So it's both fact and figure. It's both real and also representative. This is a thanksgiving psalm, a thanksgiving song for God's steadfast love in action. His steadfast love is what is going to return the weary wanderer home. His steadfast love is is what is going to release the rebellious prisoner. His steadfast love is what is going to restore rebellious suffering sinners. And his steadfast love is what's going to rescue the self-sufficient. Let me say those four again, and those can be kind of the four points of the body of our text. God's steadfast love does four things. It returns the weary wanderer home. It releases the rebellious prisoner. It restores the suffering sinner. And it rescues the self-sufficient. As we read this, I want you to ask yourself, is this where I am now? Maybe you're, you fit in one of these categories right now. Or if you're a believer, if you've been redeemed, you would say, praise God, that's where I once were. All the more reason to give thanks, amen? Or maybe you're a believer and you're tempted to return to one of these scenarios. There's hope for all three. Number one, the steadfast love of the Lord returns the weary wanderers, returns the weary Wanders. Look at verses 4 through 9. Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry, thirsty, their soul fainting within them. Notice how God immediately corrects what the problem is. They were wandering, He led them straight. There was no way to a city, it says He helped them reach a city. They were hungry and thirsty. Verse 9 says he satisfied and filled. Whatever they needed, God provided. Whatever they lacked, he supplied. Whatever was wrong, he made it right. Wandering, aimless, hungry, thirsty, fainting, weary. Is this not the plight of everyone outside of Christ? It describes us before Christ. Perhaps this is representative of the person without Christ. This is someone without a relationship with the Lord, without salvation, without hope, without direction, without a place to rest, lonely, lost, longing, empty, restless. Brother Rick, I couldn't help but think of Terry. This is where Terry was, right here. No hope, nowhere to go. She needed to find her way. She knew something was missing. That's the person described here. They would agree with St. Augustine. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee, Lord. This is a spiritual wasteland of a person wandering and looking for food and water but finding nothing that satisfies. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're wandering. 
Maybe you know there's some purpose out there, but you don't know what it is. Maybe you realize there's something missing in your life, but you can't find it. Maybe you've tried to satisfy yourself with all that the world has to offer, and this world has everything to offer, but nothing that we need. And you know that these things do not satisfy. I have a list, a growing list of funeral songs that I want, that I've been telling Anita, I want played at my funeral, and we got, I got to get that down on paper, so... You'll have it, Dave. I don't plan on singing them anytime soon at my funeral, but one of them is a precious hymn called The Untitled Hymn by Chris Rice. It's a newer, well, newer. It's probably 20 years old now, but the first verse is beautiful. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head, for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. This is the invitation for the person who is wandering, the weary wanderer. What do I do if I'm wandering and I'm weary? You do what verse 6 says. You cry to the Lord in your trouble, and He will deliver you from your distress. And then what do you do? You thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Does not Jesus fulfill all that is missing in this passage? The wanderer looks to Jesus to be the way. The weary goes to Jesus as their Sabbath rest. The hungry goes to Christ as the bread of life. The thirsty goes to Jesus as the living water. And Jesus, just like the Lord here, goes to prepare a city in which we will one day dwell. Amen? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, church, for He is good. Not only does steadfast love return the weary wanderer, but number two, it releases the rebellious prisoner releases the rebellious prisoner. Look at verses 10 through 16. Some sat in darkness and the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of the Lord. They spurned the counsel of the Lord. He bowed their hearts down with labor. They fell down with none to help. And what does God do? He brings them out. They were in darkness and death's shadow, and he brings them out. They were bound by affliction and chains, prison doors, heavy labor. He burst their bonds. He shattered their doors. This describes the person who's not weary and wandering. This is a person whose sin has found them out. Their sin has caught up with them. Their rebellion has overtaken them. Their sin has them enslaved. Their sin has them burdened. Their sin has them thinking, I don't think God can deliver me. And even if He could, I don't think He would. Is this you, my friend? If it is, this is good news. Because this is the kind of person Jesus came to save. Amen? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul said. Jesus said himself in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 13, I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners. And Jesus, Luke 4, when reading Isaiah's prophecy, and in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah said, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus read it, he rolled it up, and he said, that's me. I'm here to do that. If you are a rebellious sinner, a rebellious prisoner, shackled by the change of your sin, Jesus has come to set you free. In fact, this verse 10 here, 
Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death is quoted by Zacharias. Remember John the Baptist's father at his birth when Zacharias prophesied about his son. His son will make way for the Lord Jesus. His son will pave the way for him because the Lord Jesus will come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Luke 1.79. If that's you, what do you do? If that's you, what do you do? You do what verse... 13 says, you cry to the Lord in your trouble and he will deliver you from your distress. And then what I do, then you thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. This is every person outside of Christ and captured and enslaved by their sin, isn't it? This was me, my friend, 30 years ago in October. This was my testimony. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, says John Newton. Fast bound, that means held tight in sin and nature's night. And then the eye of God diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Praise God for the words of Charles Wesley. Praise God for the redeeming work of our Savior who breaks the chains of the sinner. He did that for me 30 years ago. Charles Wesley also said this line, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets, what? The prisoner free. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The steadfast love not only returns the weary wanderer and releases the rebellious prisoner, but number three, it restores suffering sinners. It gets worse, but it gets better. It gets worse, but it gets better. Look at verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They were fools. Now it's getting personal. This isn't mental foolishness. It means they didn't know anything. Anytime the the Bible talks about foolishness, it's talking about moral foolishness. Think of Psalm 14 you know the first verse. This is Psalm 14 kind of foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Quoted again in Romans 3. Foolishness here is moral foolishness. Because of their moral folly, verse 17 and 18 says, they have suffered affliction such that they are drawing near to the gates of death. Verse 18, they were so afflicted they were about to die. Why? Because of their sin. Because of their foolishness. Their suffering, I love what commentator Derek Kidner said, their suffering was the down payment for the wages of sin. You think this is bad, my friend. If you don't turn, worse is coming. Now, how do we deal with suffering because of sin? Well, there's obvious affliction that comes when we sin. There's obvious uh, consequences that come when we sin. The drunkard is going to have a physical consequence. They're going to ruin their liver. Or I found out when hearing about an old high school friend drank himself into diabetes. There was an immediate physical sickness and ailment because of sin. The philandering, wandering adulterer could catch a disease. There's that kind of physical affliction because of sin. And then we know in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 that Pastor Chris is covering on Wednesday nights, David speaks of 
physical affliction because of his sin, right? He uses language like, my bones are crushed and wasting away. I'm groaning. My energy is wasting because of his sin and his lack of confession. So there, there's some sort of physical affliction because of our sin. You understand? And then Jesus gives us two different kind of categories for sin and suffering. You might just jot down John chapter 5, verse 14. John 5, 14 is where Jesus has healed the lame or the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And he says to the invalid who is now healed, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Implying that somehow his sin was responsible for his affliction. But then you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 9, who assumed that the blind man was blind because of his own sin or his parents' sin. And Jesus said, neither He's blind so that the works of God may be manifest in him. So how do, we, how do we understand all this? Well, the careful biblical balance and counsel is this when it comes to sickness and suffering and sin. All sickness is because of sin in general. What I mean, it's because of the fall, right? Because of the fall, the whole world is cursed, and that means sickness came into the world. So we can say in general... Any of us get sick because of sin in general, right? Does that make sense? And we can say sometimes, sometimes, key word, sickness and affliction is because of specific sin. Sometimes, like I just mentioned. But we cannot and we must not assume, as did the disciples, that because someone is sick or suffering that they are in unrepentant sin. We don't need to go there. Runny nose, you need to confess. Then we're like Job's friends, right? They wouldn't stop. What have you done, Job, that all this suffering has happened to you? And he said a good conscience. I've done nothing. My conscience is clear. But here in Psalm 107, the suffering does come from sin because it says so. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. Very clear. And we know that Israel was often afflicted and and disciplined because of their sin. This is the person, maybe you're here today, who is in open, conscience, willful, rebellious sin, and you're seriously suffering for it. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's socially, in some way, consequently, You're suffering because of your sin. You're, in a word, getting what you deserve. But guess what? Grace doesn't give us what we deserve. Amen? What do I do if I'm suffering because of my sin and I know I deserve it? That's what grace is for. You cry out to the Lord in your trouble and He will deliver you from your distress. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. God doesn't say, as my mother used to tell me when I would do dumb things as a child, serves you right. Now, she was right because I did dumb things. God doesn't say that. God doesn't say, you've made your bed, now lie in it. God doesn't say, well, that's what you get. Now, certainly we reap what we sow, amen? Certainly there are consequences, but when it comes to grace, those who ask for redemption receive it. 
and that prompts in us songs of joy and thanksgiving in verse 22. Is this you, my friend? And call out to the Lord in your trouble. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is what? He is good. Steadfast love not only returns the weary wanderer and releases rebellious prisoners and restores suffering sinners, it rescues the self-sufficient. The next verse, verse 23 through 32, talks about sailors going to sail in a ship. Uh, carrying on their business, doing business on the great waters. And these sailors, in verses 23 and following, relied on two things. Maybe this is where you are. They relied on their courage, and they relied on their craft, and they lost both, didn't they? Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, lifting the waves of the sea, They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. I'm getting seasick just thinking about it. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Or one translation says all of their skill was useless. Or the ESV footnote says all their wisdom in sailing was swallowed up. Their bravery couldn't help them. Their craft couldn't help them. Again, to quote Derek Kidner, says it best. It's the hurricane that shakes us into seeing that in a world of gigantic forces, we live by permission, not by good management. This is the person who is self-sufficient. You think you're strong enough, you think you're brave enough, you think you're capable enough. Maybe you recognize your sin, maybe you even hate your sin. Perhaps you want to be done with your sin, and yet you think you can do it on your own. You can sail your way out of this storm. You can good your way out of your bad. You need God to bring you to your wit's end. You need God to bring you to the end of yourself. You need God to save you from yourself, don't you? We're like little children. I can do it. I can do it. Listen, if there's one thing I'm teaching your children in Awana is you can't do it. And the other thing we're teaching them is that God does it all. Amen? What do I do when I can't do? You cry to the Lord in your trouble and He will deliver you from your distress. He brought them to their desired haven. He'll bring you to the cross. And when you get to the cross, the burden, just as in Pilgrim's Progress, falls off. The self-reliant, self-sufficient person needs to know that God is sovereign and needs no help. He commanded the storm and he calmed the storm in this very verse. He does both. He's not sovereign if he can't do both. He's not just a reactive God, He's a proactive God. He's not just sovereign over nature, He's sovereign over your nature. He can and will save you, my friend. And we know that Jesus is also able. Jesus, God in the flesh, walked on water, calmed the waters when they were stormy. Matthew 14, Mark 4, He is sovereign over nature and sovereign over you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is what? He is good. Steadfast love returns the weary wanderer, releases rebellious prisoners, restores the suffering sinner, and rescues the self-sufficient. 
Well, the remainder of our psalm by way of conclusion is a reminder of the providence of God. That's how you can describe the, the remaining verses. A reminder of the providence of God. The remainder reminds us of God's sovereignty. He dries up rivers into a desert and then He makes deserts into pools of water. He makes fruitful land into a salty waste and then He returns and makes it fruitful again. He brings down low and He raises up high. Whether your enemy is a person or poverty, God can pour contempt or God can raise a crop. Why is it important to remember in our thankfulness that God is sovereign in His providence over all things because we're commanded to give thanks in all circumstances? Amen? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Listen, when I believe that God is sovereign over it, then I can more easily give thanks to Him in it, right? The final reminder, verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. That means let him think about, let him pay attention, let him guard these things. Let him consider, think hard about what? The steadfast love of the Lord. We're right back where we started. He began with a command to give thanks to the Lord. He ends with a consideration of the steadfast love in the Lord, all the while calling us over and over again to give thanks to the Lord. Are you thankful, my friend? Are you thankful for the goodness of the Lord? Have you experienced the steadfast love of the Lord? If not, it could be because you're not one of the redeemed. The unredeemed cannot say so. The Lord has never delivered you from your distress because you've never called out to Him in your trouble. You can't give thanks because you don't know His goodness. Listen, the Lord saved my oldest daughter, Abby, during a Lord's Supper service when the pastor encouraged us to pray and to give thanks to God for His salvation. And Abby will tell you in her testimony, I realized I had nothing to thank God for. I had not received salvation. I couldn't thank Him. And so what'd she do? She cried out to God for help, and he delivered her from her trouble. Wherever you find yourself in these four scenarios, the answer is the same. The help is the same. The remedy is the same. Cry out to the Lord in your trouble, and he will deliver you. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms, which is hard to pick one, Psalm 34, verse 6. It's my testimony in a nutshell. This poor man cried And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Maybe you're one of the redeemed and you've not been thankful. You've not said so. Not to God, not to others. You've not rehearsed his deliverance in your life. You've not been thankful for his testimony of saving faith to you. Maybe because you found yourself falling back into these patterns. You find yourself tempted in some of these verses. You're wandering and weary. You're rebelling. You're suffering because of sin. Or you're becoming self-sufficient once again. What do I do? Call out to the Lord in your trouble. He will deliver you from your distress. The Lord Jesus came to fulfill this psalm. The Lord Jesus came to walk the straight and narrow, to be the way, the truth, and the life. He came to live the perfect life that you and I cannot live. 
He came to die the sacrificial death on the cross that you and I deserved. We deserve what we have coming to us. Jesus was the only one who didn't deserve it. And yet he died for the innocent, for the guilty. And then Jesus, of course, proving that his life and death was enough to save us, rose from the grave three days later and now reigns at the right hand of God the Father. Do you know him? Is he your redeemer or is he to you a stranger? We want to introduce him to you this morning. We'd love to talk to you after the service about how you can have a relationship with the Lord and cry out to him in your trouble and he will deliver you in your distress. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we cry. We always find ourselves in trouble, out of one problem and right back into the next because of our sinfulness, because of our waywardness, because of our rebellion, because of our wandering, because of our rebellion, because of our suffering and our sinning. Oh, God, deliver us. Redeem us, we pray, for your glory so that we can, with a heart of thanksgiving, Give thanks to you for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Make us a grateful people. Redeem us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.